Activation warning. This episode contains explicit and graphic descriptions of suicide, self-harm, sexual assault, and rape. Discretionary caution and action is required. This episode is not for children. Please use extreme self-care in listening to this episode and seek immediate help through the National Suicide Hotline by dialing 988 if you are emotionally activated or triggered by the content of this episode, or if you are activated and need help from the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline, call 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. I shouldn't have to sacrifice myself and carry everything I've carried and neither should any survivors out there. So anyone listening that is in silence, like take heed to the words. It's not your burden to, to keep to yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sexual Assault Survivor Stories, the SAS podcast. I'm glad you're here. You've just tuned in to one of the most important podcasts that you may ever listen to. Because the purpose of this podcast is to provide a safe space for victims and survivors of rape and sexual assault to share their stories and connect with others who've been through similar experiences. However, there are other important aspects to this podcast, community, education, and support. I believe that sharing our stories is one of the most important steps to healing, and my hope is that the SAS podcast will help victims and survivors feel less alone and more empowered. And my ultimate goal is to provide all of my listeners with insights, resources, and a supportive space where empathy, compassion, and understanding thrive. My commitment is to being there for all my listeners. I'm your host, Dave Markell, coming to you from the Podvlog Studio in St. George, Utah, and I'm here each week talking to victims and survivors or interviewing experts and professionals in order to not only gain insights and information to help us on our healing path, but also to provide an education on being trauma-informed, working to help bring justice to victims and survivors of rape and sexual assault. Whether you're aware of it or not, we all know someone whose life has been impacted by rape or sexual assault. So I encourage everyone to listen to this podcast. Whatever your experience is with rape or sexual assault, you are not alone, and we are all here for each other. Thank you again for being here. Hi, everyone. This is episode 57, which is part two of my interview with Lee Cooper, a child sexual assault survivor who suffered both sexual and physical violence at the hand of his own father. In this second part of this two-part series, Lee talks about the devastating impacts that his childhood sexual abuse has had and still has on his adulthood. Lee does an amazing job of articulating not only the impact that his assault had on him, but also how sexual assault impacts all of us. So I'm going to get right to the episode. We start with the last few sentences of last week's episode leading into this week's. I'll catch you on the other side. Here's Lee. We'd been on our trips, and then we came home and lockdown started, and I was reading The Body Keeps the Score, and we're back to the start. This is this is where the story actually begins now. So after I wrote that letter to my ex-girlfriend explaining what had happened, that then opened a different world for me. Everything that I'd kept secret was no longer a secret, at least to one person, which just 
that on its own was very scary. And I started to face my reality head on. And I'd like to say that disclosing that things got better for me, uh, but for a long time, they didn't. They got worse, a hell of a lot worse, actually. When I disclosed, it was October 2020, which for your American viewers was about to lead into a awful time here in England. The country was shut down over winter 2020, like full lockdown in Manchester and the north of England, which means everything was shut. Um, The gym, huge outlet for me, shut. You're not allowed to see families and friends. Life itself is up in the air. And then I added this little cherry on top of 20 years worth of repressed trauma and sexual abuse and just chaos. And then I had to leave my job at the bar because it became too much. Everything became too much. But then obviously I needed a job. So I was unemployed when I disclosed, which again, probably the time element. I had time to to decide if I was going to tell her or not, which I ultimately did. But then I had to start earning money again. So I got a job at Tesco, which is a supermarket here, as a click and collect assistant, which basically means I sat on a van all day and people come and collected their shopping from it. Which in hindsight, this was probably a bit of a blessing because I'm just sat in this van all day and I'm able to process stuff. And the therapy term is like sit in the pain. You have to, you can't outthink this. You have to feel it. You have to process it. You have to, you have to deal with it. Being in this van on my own all day, you know, it was a perfect place to do that. That's in hindsight. Um, at the time, it was a fucking nightmare. It was a fucking nightmare. The whole time was brutal. So It's winter in England, which is not a particularly nice time anyway. It's grey, it's cold, it's raining, it's miserable every single day. It's like Groundhog Day for like the worst day of your life. I'm going to this van every day. I'm like, what is life? Like, this is my reality right now. And it's awful. I experienced derealization and depersonalization during this time where nothing feels real. And it's it's quite scary. You lose your mind a little bit, Mm. in all honesty. Yeah. Like I was getting up and I'm looking at myself in this this uniform, which you know I'm not I'm not knocking anyone that works at Tesco, but it was not what I wanted to do. And I'm like looking in my mirror and I just felt empty, like no emotions, just nothing. And if you've ever felt like that, it's a bizarre. You don't feel like you're existing. Usually you'll feel sad, you'll feel angry, you'll feel something, yeah. but to feel nothing, it was awful. Everything in my life had changed from the year before, not just the trauma stuff, but where I lived changed. My job changed, my routine changed, who I was seeing changed, COVID changed everything. So all the anchors that you ground yourself with, like, this is who I am, this is my identity. I do this, I work here, I am this person. They're all gone. Plus the concept of who you are has been erased, realizing all the trauma stuff. Like, what is this life I've been living? Looking back, I was probably in crisis. I was probably struggling quite a lot. There wasn't really any help available at the time. And like, yeah, my abuse, talking about it, it just shattered my reality at the time where reality itself was already being heavily challenged by everything going on in the world. Sure. I was pretty much lost, like in every sense of the word, just totally lost. And then the added element is all the trauma that I was bringing to the surface. That's not just a daytime thing. It's 24-7. I was having the most horrific nightmares and trauma nightmares. They're not like a normal nightmare. It's horrific. It's like the real thing. And I was reliving what I described earlier every night in real detail and it feels real. And like I was getting sleep paralysis and there was no escape. Basically I was having these awful nightmares at night to waking up to this awful reality. And I'm like, where is the break? Where's the help? Do you know, is it going to end? It just felt endless. 
it was such a such a terrible time. I'm just going to this soul destroying job, literally soul destroying, and I'm sat in this van all day. It's a place called Salford Precincts, which is it's just not a nice place to spend your time. And every day I'm just sat in this fucking van for eight hours in the same spot. It was the probably the most depressed I've ever been. It was awful. Sure. Wow. And that went on for months. And then in March 2021, I sent my dad a text message confronting him. Basically, what I said was, I listed all the most traumatic things that had happened in my life and broke them down into, these all happened because you was drunk, because you was drinking. Every single one of these things stemmed from you, not being able to control yourself. And then I ended all that with, and then the cherry on top was, you did this to me. I listed what he'd done. At the time, I didn't want it to go further between me and him. I ended the message saying, don't worry, I'm not going to tell anyone, but I know what you did and I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And I give him one chance to respond to this. And do you want to know what his response was? Yeah. It came after midnight and he was drunk, probably like he always was. And it said, wow, okay, chatterbox. Never, ever deal it like that. And that was it. That's all he said. Never, ever deal it like that? Yeah, makes no fucking sense. He was drunk. So his head is just frazzled. I responded saying, okay, great, great use of your one chance to response and then blocked him. And then a week later, I got an email off him saying it's going to kill himself. So I told my mum that he'd said this to me, like, go and check he's okay. But I didn't tell her why he'd say this. And she didn't question why he said it. And then I blocked him on email again. And that was the last I actually spoke to him, which, again, it brings up mixed emotions. You know, that was two and a bit years ago now. A lot of, like, weird emotions on on all fronts there. Yeah, for sure. But at the same time, I did disclose to my mum told her what happened and again i'd like to say it helped but it didn't you know her response has been really really disappointing uh, as it often is for survivors when they they tell people close to them yeah it's true you know i don't want to talk it about too much because it it has been a bit of a disaster since i told her the relationship with my mum and my sisters like it's completely broken down but again like bringing up childhood sexual abuse and bringing it to light it's like it's earth shattering uh, it's paradigm shifting I've always referred to it as carrying a nuclear bomb that, you know, if you detonate it, it's going to cause widespread devastation, not just to my life, but to everyone around it. You know, everyone that's impacted by this, Mm -hmm. it's not just me in this thing. You know, it's going to destroy the life of your abuser, at least as it was. And if you're sane and you're not a sociopath, like you don't want to be responsible for that kind of damage. You don't want to hurt people that way. So what most people do is they bury the bomb and you take all the damage, like you carry all the shame, the guilt, the anger, the rage, everything, and it takes its toll. And me disclosing, it was like detonating a bomb, a nuclear bomb. You know, it's destroyed everything as it was. It's caused a lot of damage and life is never going to be the same for people. It's scary. But I also want to give, again, an opinion whilst whilst we're here, because I think that if every survivor out there was to be honest about their abuse and go public in this very vocal way, I think the entire fabric of society would, would change. I think it would be carnage out there because for every victim slash survivor, there's a perpetrator and very, very few perpetrators, you know, they're not the creepy pervert in a trench coat loitering around the park or around the school. That's a caricature. Very, very few people are like that. You know, these aren't monsters, like mythical monsters. They're all around us living everyday lives, you know, with jobs. You probably spend time in the presence of a perpetrator every single day, probably close to one, you know, and I think that thought is scares people. It's yeah, it's palpable when you put it like that. And it's it's true. It's, it is true. 
But going back to my story, I say it caused damage, which it did. But like, I'm not responsible for that damage. Do you know, it wasn't my actions that, that set all this in motion. I shouldn't, I shouldn't destroy my life to protect an abuser for, for some horrific shit he did. Yeah. I shouldn't have to sacrifice myself and carry everything I've carried. And neither should any survivors out there. So anyone listening that is in silence, like take heed to the words. It's not your burden to, to keep to yourself. But yeah, at the same time, when I disclosed to my mum, she wasn't helpful, which is not a blame game. We all deal things in our own way. And I think denial is, it must be really difficult for my mum. We've never really spoke how she feels about all this because she's very closed off. But I imagine it's difficult to have failed to protect me, which is all any mother wants, really. But back to my story, it was just held, you know, I just thought by sharing and telling people it would get better. It just wasn't. Mm-hmm. I was, it, it was just getting worse. Mm-hmm. I thought sharing would ease the load and it's just compounding it. So it was hell, like spring and summer came and I was just drowning. So by August 2021, 10 months after I disclosed, I had to leave my job at Tesco. I couldn't do it anymore, like literally couldn't do it. And I think me leaving that job, it was like the final straw with my ex-girlfriend and we broke up. It was probably the lowest point of my life, probably will be the lowest point of my life ever. And I just felt absolutely brutal. It just felt like... You're losing everything, like literally everything. And there's a chapter in a book called Victims No Longer by Mike Blue, which it has a, a chapter in it for partners of survivors to, to read as they go through, like, you know, the disclosure process, which I really wish I'd read sooner. And if there are any people out there that are going through this, I'd highly recommend getting that book and reading all of it, but this chapter as well, because again, it's a difficult thing for everyone involved. And in the book, it just, in this chapter about relationships, it explains the complexities that are going to be added to the dimension. And it mentions that if you're in a caring relationship with a male survivor, you've already accomplished something significant. Like this is someone that would not share this and they've shared it with you. So that's like quite a, it's a huge thing. Yeah, it is. Um, That's why it was so much harder for me. Like, I don't want to get into what happened, but I just felt like really abandoned, which a lot of trauma is is ultimately an abandonment issue anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so it just compounded everything I was going through times 10. And I, I, it's not a blame game. You know, I wasn't I wasn't pleasant to be around at this time. There was a lot of boundary and like communication issues on both sides. Like we was only together two years. And like, if she can't see a future with me no more, you know, that's fair. Life's not a fairy tale. And we all practice self-preservation, you know, shutting it out and fair enough. It says in the book, like, person you was with is not going to be the person moving forward. So you have to decide if if you want to proceed or not. And, you know, she didn't want to, which is, it happens. But that's not to say it didn't crush me, man. At this time, all the lives of my peers, my friends, everything's fallen into place. You know, they, they're getting wives, kids, houses, careers, money. You know, life is getting nice. They've, they've worked to get to the nice part. And for me, everything was just disintegrating. It's just literally falling apart before my eyes. Yeah. And I was powerless to do anything about it. You know, I'd found this safe place to explore the trauma, which is why I brought it all up. And now it's gone. And so of all my defences to deal with it. So I'm in the wild, out in the cold, with none of my defences. Literally at this time in August 2021, I was now single, uh, I was homeless, unemployed, had very little money, drowning in all this crap, like just totally lost. I went to my friend Shane, who I mentioned in my diary entry when I was 12. Him and his wife, Kate, they let me stay at the house for a couple of months to to get back on my feet, like no pressure, which if it, if it wasn't for them doing that, I would I would have probably killed myself. People don't like to hear that. People don't like to hear people say these things. Suicide is not something we like to talk about. 
But again, it's something I've researched a lot in the past couple of years, not how to harm myself, but why men kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And I read a report this year by the All-Party Parliamentary Group, which is a group put together here in England. It's, it's a group on issues affecting boys and men put together by the British government. And they released a report called Tackling Male Suicide. And in the report, it says male suicide, it comes down to three things. Number one is external factors or stressors, which it kind of addresses the permanent solution to a temporary problem element of suicide. The stressors is like relationship breakdown, child maintenance payments, isolation, financial concerns, unemployment, homelessness, isolation and loneliness, adverse childhood experiences, which my A score is nine. Like the only saving grace is neither of my parents ever went to prison. You know, so it's high, it's a high score. And then number two is universal issues, which is loss of social connection, loss of, loss of meaning and purpose, uh, a gap in available and clearly signposted male-friendly services, and lack of professional societal curiosity or empathy with respect to male well-being. And then number three is transitions slash new life events, which is loss of work, family and relationship loss, homelessness, bereavement, and going to university and college. So like the three main factors, which when I've read them, you know, in the report, it says many men view suicide as a rational decision and a solution based outcome based on the failure to fix these problems. So by them factors, like I had a full house on the male suicide bingo card and it it was just not a nice period of my life, you know, it it was hell. But I got a job straight away at the Trafford Centre at a bar. Uh, The Trafford Centre is like a huge shopping complex here. And I, I just grinded it out, basically. I was learning as much as I could about photography, which is the second thing that's kept me going through all this. And like as much as I could about trauma, all the books I mentioned, just started reading, started learning. This is what I've got, then how am I going to move forward with it? Like, how do I deal with it? I can't keep living like this. I can't keep drowning. And it's hard, you know, dealing all this trauma, it's hard. Like I said before, you have to sit in the pain. You have to feel it, and it's difficult. Yeah. And, and learning about trauma, and as you learn about it, you understand yourself more. It's, a, it's said a lot, but it's like peeling an onion. You think you're done with one thing, and then you peel a layer, and you're like, well, there's even more under here. Fuck. Yeah. And it was hard, you know. At this point, I'm at the midway point of my life, pretty much. Halfway through, and like you discover that you've been disconnected from everything, from yourself, from the world, from feeling things. You, you put up all these walls... And it blocks out a lot of the bad, but it also blocks out all the good. You're safe, you're in this isolation bubble, but you're not feeling anything. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard to describe. Like You don't develop yourself. Like I said, you miss all the opportunities and you pay for it. And you kind of feel like you've just been a bunch of coping mechanisms bunched up in a trench coat pretending to be a person, Do you know. Who am, who am I? What do I what do I like to do? I don't know. I've never explored that, you know, previously with, with the trauma. And that's why photography for me was a big thing. I was like, I enjoy this. I like this. I'm good at this. This makes me feel good and I, I want to pursue this. Yeah. For normal kids, that's what they do that when they're 14, 15, like they discover what they like. Yeah. You, you're trying to suppress all this inner chaos that there is no room for all that. You're simply just surviving. Yeah. It's not an excuse. We live and die by the decisions we make in life, but... When you realise that every single decision you've ever made has been influenced by this mental injury that you didn't even know you had. It's pretty mind-blowing. It's, it's hard to describe just exactly how that feels. And complex PTSD, which is what I've got from this, the difference between complex post-traumatic stress disorder and normal PTSD is PTSD comes from like a singular horrific incident. Uh, complex, it's prolonged. 
So it's, it's complex trauma. It's over a long period of time. There's no one specific point where you can pinpoint this has happened because of this. Right. And also with complex trauma, it's usually in development years. So you've not really developed into a person yet. So it damages your entire being. Whereas PTSD, you could have a, a car crash in your mid-30s, but you can get over that. You can you can get to a place where you was prior. Yeah. Whereas with, with childhood abuse, you can't. Yeah, because you were never allowed the opportunity of developing coping skills. And the coping skills you develop from trauma are not the normal day-in, day-out coping skills that children are supposed to develop. Yeah, so like I said before, it's a, you're in a permanent arrested development state. You just... That's right. You don't really grow. And I describe it as a mental injury, not an illness, because if someone had bashed my legs in as a child with a baseball bat, you wouldn't say, oh, he's ill. You'd say he's been injured. And it's the same principle for the mind in my book. But I, I did begin to develop myself. You know, like I said, with my photography, I began to learn about myself, understand myself. I learned about CPTSD and dissociation, which is a big thing. Uh, dissociation, it's how you cope. I want to list some of the books that I've read, if you don't mind. I'd appreciate it. So these are all books that I've read and like pretty much studied in detail. If there's any survivors listening, they'll, they'll really help. So there's two that I've already mentioned, which is The Body Keeps the Score and then Trauma and Recovery. There's Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which isn't a psychological book per se, but it's determination and perseverance and surviving it will help you understand how to get through these things there's healing the fragmented selves of trauma survivors by janina fisher which is really helpful because as i mentioned earlier you do fragment yourself there's different selves inside me there's a trauma self there's who i am and you have to learn how to integrate and then become one there's complex ptsd from surviving to thriving by pete walker that's like a classic and will help you get to grips with what is going on uh, the book I mentioned by Mike Lou, Victims No Longer, which is the classic guide for men recovering from sexual abuse. And that's probably the Bible. If you're going to read one, if you're a male survivor, that's number one. Get that and go from there. Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents by Lindsay Gibson, which for me has helped me understand my mum's side of it, you know, because it's a two-way thing. Um, there's a lot of emotional negligence on my mum's side in all this, which is quite damaging for a child as well. Trauma is essentially like attachment disorders. If you're not shown how to attach as a child, then you don't do well in adulthood, basically, right. in a nutshell. Right. And she didn't have much chance for that herself from the sounds of it. She was experiencing her own trauma with your she father. She was 18 when she had me, you know. She was, I'm sorry? She's 18. Yeah. She's not had all the, the greatest experience herself, so yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult. It's trauma on trauma on trauma. Just with you, it was, it's obviously that, but with her, the same thing. And then she's got the realization that she didn't do all she could to protect her child, which is another trauma. Yeah. You know, like I said before, there's no answers that are easy fixes. It's, it's hard. Yeah. And then there's coping with trauma-related dissociation by Ono van der Hart, which helps you understand dissociation, how it works. For me, being triggered, I, I tend to dissociate. You have to come to learn between the two states. I know when I'm triggered and know when I'm dissociated by the behaviours I start to do. You know, if my room becomes untidy and I decide at 3pm I need to sleep and I need to escape, that's I'm dissociating, I'm, I'm not here. And this is where you have to practice mindfulness and bring yourself into the present where things aren't bad. Because trauma, you, you go back to trauma time and relive all the things that happened to you. It's hard to explain, but that's the nutshell. Learning when you dissociate and how to bring yourself back to the present moment and live your life now is like the key to moving forward with all this. Yeah. 
So all them books, they like, they've helped me tremendously in understanding what trauma is, how it's impacted me, brain and body, because it's a two-way street. And yeah, like I'd reached rock bottom, basically. Like I don't think the only way I could have got lower is being actually homeless and addiction, which is sadly how a lot of trauma victims end up. Yeah. Another good book is uh, In the Realms of Hungry, Hungry Ghosts by Gabba Matt. That's a that delves into addiction and the trauma and how it all feeds and how we're not very compassionate as a society to addicts who, you know, they've all they've all been through really bad stuff, most of them, and they're just left to rot, which is it's not really good. But I didn't do that. I, I began to find my strength again as I understood what was going on and how to deal with it and like began to rise again, you know. I threw myself into photography which I'd started in a, a hobby in the first lockdown. And then after the breakup, I just got totally entrenched in it, basically. It was my escape. If I wasn't working, I'd just go out taking pictures. And the reason that's great is because I just mentioned with mindfulness, with photography, you're in the here and now. You're focusing entirely on what's in front of you. You're focusing on that. You're trying to get the good shot. You're not thinking about the past. You're not thinking about the future. It's just purely here and now for trauma. That's really magic. It's why I do workshops now. I do photography workshops. For that reason, with mental health charities, for, for people to, to understand the power of expressing yourself via photography and being in the moment with it. And that's what a lot of the guys say. They're like, yeah, this is really, it's really helping me with life. And then after the breakup in September 2021, I reported to the police, which this is how you got onto my story. Correct. Because it's not been good at all. It took a lot of courage to decide to report to the police because the ramifications are big. They're huge, you know. I'm reporting this outside of my circle. It's going to go to the law. It's going to become public. It's going to be on record. If my dad goes to prison because of this, that's on me. That's a big step. Like, I know what you're about to say. You're about to say it's not on me because he did the things. Right. Exactly. I think that needs to be said. I mean, not only for your sake, but for the sake of everybody that's listening. Well, that's how it feels. That's how it feels. Sure, sure. That's not the end point. This is all on me is not the end point. There's got to be a follow through of the recognition that it isn't on you. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what happened with reporting and then I'll tell you what happened afterwards and how it feeds into what I just said. Yeah. So it took a lot of courage to like make the call for them reasons. Mm -hmm. And then the state of this country at the moment in England, it's not great. Nothing works. All our services are terrible. We had 10 years, well, 13 years of austerity, which is the government starving everything of money to the point where they're broken now. Nothing works. So I rang 101, which is a non-emergency police line. And this this rang out for like 25 minutes. Just rang, like ring, ring for 25 minutes. Wow. Um, that's unbelievable. That's a long time. That's very easy for someone to say, do you know what? Phone down, I'm never going to ring again. But I waited 25 minutes. The person picks up. I'm like, hi, I want to report historical sexual abuse. There wasn't, sorry to hear that, do you know, any compassion. It was just, there's no one here to deal with that right now. You can call back later or I can take your details. Or if you go online, there's a live chat facility and there'll be someone that can help you there. So I was like, I was like, all right, well, if that's what it is, I'll, that's what it is, I'll go online. Went online on the live chat facility, do you know, very impersonal. Waited another like 10, 15 minutes for an operator to come on to the chat. Told them the same thing, typed it, reporting historical sexual abuse. And it's like, oh, no problem. If you fill this form in, someone will be in touch. And then it's a link. Click on the link. And it's just a web form, a standard web form that you get on any website, as if I'm reporting a stolen bike. 
you know, I, I was the same as you. I was like, wow. I was like, the, the courage it took to report this historical sexual abuse, which is a crime, no less than all the other crimes. And it's just like, yeah, fill this for me. And Greater Manchester Police, you know, they're not a small force. They should have a dedicated, okay, we'll put you right through to this 24-7 team right now. Yeah, that would be ideal. And it's... But that didn't happen. Yeah. It was just this form. And I was like, well, fuck this, and I'm not doing it. And I didn't do it. I gave up. But it stayed on my mind. It played on my mind repeatedly. But how many people give up there and don't go back? Played on my mind. So I went into the police station in person, told the woman at the front desk what I wanted to do. She was really friendly. She was compassionate, the lady at the desk. Got me a cup of coffee, like sat me in this room. She's like, are you okay? Really looked after. Uh, and then the detective came down like two hours later after this. They kept me in the loop. She's not here yet, but she'll be here. It was as good as it could be. The detective that took my details and story, she's like, I don't need the ins and outs, but just give me an overview. So I gave it to her and she was really understanding and helpful. And then she was like, because this has happened in a different district. So Greater Manchester Police Force has different districts. And she's like, because it's happened in a different district, it has to be dealt with there. And I was like, well, why can't it be dealt with here? She's like, we've not got the staff and it has to be where it happened. I was like, okay, when will that be? And she's like, we'll transfer it straight away and then soon will be in touch. So I'm like, okay, that's what it is. It's what it is. Two weeks went by, didn't hear anything. Rang the woman at Ashton. She's like... Okay, I'll chase it for you. A guy at the Oldham Police Station rang me. He's like, really sorry, I've been on holiday. Give me your email address. We can connect via email. And I'll call you on Saturday when I'm back off holiday. And we'll go from there. So I was like, okay. Sent him an email. He didn't respond to the email. And then he also didn't call me on Saturday. So I rang him on the Saturday night and left him a voicemail. And then he rang me back on the Sunday morning. And I, I was really angry at him. I'm like, you asked me for my email and you said you would ring. I didn't ask you to do that. You said you will do it and then you've not done it. And it's been two weeks since I reported and I'm just in the dark. When I reported it to the police, I was having nightmares where my dad is begging me not to report to the police because it's going to ruin his life. So I was having these dreams where life as it was, you know, where we were on friendly terms and then it, it would just become horrific. He's like begging me to like not end his life. And then I wake up and then I have to shake that off. You know, that's the type of shit this puts your brain under. So I expressed my anger and how unhappy I'd been so far. And he's like, I'm going to pass it on to a member of my team because he was like the sergeant of the detectives or whatever it is. He was in charge of the squad. And he's like, I'm going to give it to a detective and they will be in touch. And then a week passed, another week. And the guy that rang me, he had the most shitty attitude. Like he couldn't be asked, like, is this Lee? Do you know, really bad. And I just cut him off. I was like, do you know what? Forget it. Forget all of it. This is too stressful. I don't want to, I don't want to do it. Even then there wasn't any pushbacks. Like, are you sure this is a child sex offender we want to try and catch? Are you sure you don't want to do it? You're just like, yeah, okay, no problem. Bye. Wow. Essentially. Yeah. So that that was basically like a kick in the balls, basically, the whole process. I was like, why did they even do that? It just yeah. put me under so much stress when I'm already under a tremendous amount of stress. It all boils down to like everyone's do the right thing, report it. And it's like why, why why, would you report it if, if that's going to happen? Right. And that's what people do. People don't report it for these reasons. Yeah, that's right. So then time moved on, and in December 2021, I moved out of my friend's house, and I moved into the bedroom that you see now. I found a slight bit of stability. But I want to make an important point here that is often overlooked. So it's well documented that survivors of childhood sexual abuse 
They're less likely to obtain an education. They'll earn less over the lifetime. They're going to struggle to hold down jobs. In general, they're going to struggle with life. It's not going to be easy. That's well-researched. It's well-documented. Yet there's very little help given to survivors of sexual abuse. We're kind of just left to drown in like this capitalist system. Like, well, if you can't swim, then you're going to drown. Sorry. Which, you know, that's, that's not right in my book. So we're in a cost of living crisis in the UK. So I can only afford to live in this house, you know, a shared house with strangers. And as I said at the start, when I told you what happened to me, a bedroom, it's a place where I felt like a prisoner every night as a kid. It's where I had to lock myself in. It's a place where I was almost raped. And it's an extremely triggering environment to me. I don't feel safe in bedrooms. I don't like them. I don't want to be in them. And yet it's the only space in the world that I can call my own. And for me, it's, it's like it's like forcing someone who's been in a car crash to like watch videos of car crashes all night. It's like, just get settled. You know, watch this, get settled. Like, I get triggered in here. And the word triggered, it's kind of been trivialized to a degree. It's like become a bit of a joke term. Triggered, like, yeah. I didn't like that I'm triggered. When it it's not a slight discomfort, it's not being annoyed at something. It's a neurological change that is literally de- debilitating. Parts of my brain go offline. Exactly. I lose a bit of who I am. I'll get emotional flashbacks that can like cause me so much pain that I wish I was dead because it feels like I'm reliving the most horrific moments of my life in real time. My body reacts as if it's happening in real time. So I can be 34 years old in this bedroom. When I'm alone, I can get triggered to someone's about to burst in in through the door. I'm on edge. It's a reality. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got to deal with that. It's not just an imaginative state. It's a reality that that's going to happen. And yes, all yeah. of those trauma chemicals are activated and it's just like the body keeps the score says. The body keeps the score and your body yeah. feels it. Absolutely. So I'm a bit better with it now as I've grasped. But back then in December 2021, I'm still having a hard time. So I'm, I'm triggered here. My job at the bar, it's, it's a, it made me feel trapped. So I'm on an eight foot stretcher bar all day long. Like I have to work there, otherwise I'm going to be homeless. It was making me feel worthless because it's just menial minimum wage job that I don't want to be doing. I want to be doing what photography stuff. I want to live my life. I don't want to just be fucking working in the bar. Uh, it's unfulfilling. It's not leading anywhere. And you know, I'm 32 years old working with kids, you know, the 18, 19, going to uni, getting ready for the life. And I'm just like 32 years old wearing this fucking apron, stuck in this job that I hate, which it, it was triggering. And it, it just fed into all everything I said, you know, all the, the lost opportunities. And I wasn't even aware of trauma at the time. And it's led me to this point, And it's so fucking frustrating. And then that it kind of comes like a self-perpetuating cycle. You know, it, it feeds into itself. And this is why people, throwing a bit of therapy at that, it's not going to fix it. 10 sessions of therapy is not going to fix problems that are this deep-rooted. It needs to be examined closely, which is one of my aims. Yeah, living in that cycle, it's a... Uh, Homer's Iliad is the great epic, uh, and this guy's Cepheus is punished for trying to cheat death. His <clears> punishment <throat> by Zeus is to roll a boulder up a hill for eternity, mm-hmm. and every time he nears the top of the hill, boulder rolls back down, and he's got to push it back to the top. That's what CPTSD feels like. Yeah, Do you know, I'll, I'll be flying high, I'll get triggered. I'm in the depths of despair where, like, suicide ideation, lives, where you, you feel that bad that you just you don't want to be here anymore. But then you climb out of it, and then it happens again. And then you keep going, you know, you, you've got to keep going. And that's what CPTSD is like living on a trap door that can go out from underneath you anytime if you get triggered, which is easily preventable when you know what your triggers are. But as I just mentioned, one of my triggers is this room. If I could afford to live in a normal apartment like a normal person, 
I wouldn't feel half as triggered. I'd be able to get done the stuff I need to get done and life would be a lot easier. And then people, they're going to turn around and say, well, get a better job then if you're so unhappy. But the bottom line is you're in this cycle like I can't get the work done that I need to get done because I'm triggered. I'm not doing the work that I need to get done, so I'm not progressing. I can't get out of here, so you're stuck. Because of this this cycle that I've just described here, back then I'm, I'm still in the suicide danger zone. I'm still in danger, basically. And I want to mention the difference between passive suicide ideation and active, because that's a key difference for people to understand with trauma. So the, the pain of an emotional flashback is really hard to describe if you've never had one. But it, it's basically like I've said before, what happened, the bodily sensation, the mind, it feels like it's happening again in real time and you regress back to that time. So it's hard to explain the pain that feels, but the story I told you at the start, imagine how you would feel with that happening and then imagine that happening again and again and again and again. That's the reality of this condition. When you live alone, it's isolating. There's no one to turn to, to say, I'm feeling like this. I'm going to get grounded. You can snap me out of this. You just, you got to snap yourself out of it, which is hard to snap yourself out of something when it's your own brain doing it. How do you trick your own brain? You don't, you just have to wait for it to end. So again, the whole way society views trauma needs to be examined because people are just out here drowning and dealing with this shit. But the difference between passive and active is knowing the pain is going to pass. So recognizing, I feel this way. I felt this way before it will pass. When you're in it, it's terrible, but you know, when you're out of it, you're going to feel like yourself again. Active on the other side is I want to die. I don't want to be here anymore. Christmas of 2021 was, was horrible for me. Uh, I spent it alone and I realized like I'm not moving forward. Like nothing's happening. And I realized that I'm not going to make it through this on my own. Like I'm just not going to make it. It was in the middle of like January 2022. And I just had a particularly rough day. Do you know where I was highly triggered? I'm just laying on my bed and I'm like, I can either end my life or I can get the support that I need. So I rang my gran that day and said, I need to come round. I was crying to her. I was like, I need to come round. I need to tell you something. And I told her everything that had happened, which was not easy or a nice thing to do, do you know, to my grandma. She's a bit elderly. She's not in the best of health. But but it, it felt good afterwards because it removed this other barrier of, of isolation. And at the same time, when I, repo- when I reported my dad to the police, I got refor- referred to a service called uh, We Are Survivors. At the time, it was called Survivors Manchester, which is a charity here in Manchester that helped uh, male survivors of sexual abuse and rape. When I first got referred to them, I didn't want the help. I was like, no, I don't want your help. But then I realised I do need the help. (laughs) So I I re-referred myself to them. I called up and said, you spoke to me in November. I said, no, but now I'm saying, yeah. And they're like, yeah, no problem. I had to do like a two-hour call, I think it was, where I just explained everything I'd been through. It was like, not a screening, but they want to know what you're dealing with and how they can help. And I joined a thing called The Safe Room there, which is its peer-to-peer support group. And I was very, very reluctant at first. I was like sitting in a guy, sitting in a room with guys, feeling sorry for themselves, talking about sexual abuse of all things. I was like, nah, that's not for me. But it's probably the most powerful thing that a male survivor of sexual abuse can do, this peer-to-peer support group, because it it gives you a space to express yourself to people who can truly understand how you're feeling. Uh, Because a lot of people, they simply can't comprehend these things that I've been through. Yeah. they can sympathize and they can feel sorry for you which i fucking hate with a passion i don't want to be pitied i'm not a pity case but they can sympathize you know you've been through some terrible you've had this but they can't understand how it makes you feel and a lot of people also they like they recoil when you talk about sexual abuse a lot of people don't want to hear about it nope not interested it's bursting my reality no thank you 
but in the safe room, you know, people do want to hear. They do want to know what you've been through. They do. You can say it openly, honestly, which is why I'm able to do it now because I've done it in there, and I, I know if I can do it in there, then I can do it here too. That's where it all started in the safe room. Yeah. And being around the male survivors, you know, it helps remove these barriers that I just mentioned of isolation. One by one, they get taken down, and your confidence grows. And then, like going, like I said before, going from carrying this deep, dark secret for twenty years to sharing it first with one person, then another, then another, and then a room full of people. Me sat in a room talking to to guys, and then then I can see how they're reacting to what I'm saying. You know, it's a safe environment, and I'll refer to it as like taking your shoes off after a particular long day. Like gives you a nice sense of relief. Yeah. After many years of struggle. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. So I'm going there every two weeks on Thursday evenings, it was. And I'm working and I'm taking photographs and I'm just going. And then one of my photographs, it was in a art exhibition in March 2022. And I was there at this event and I, I saw my work on the wall. It's framed. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to like display my work. So I decided I'm going to get good at photography. Also around this time, in the safe room, we got talking about justice and what that means to us as survivors. Yeah. And I'd mentioned that I'd previously reported to the police, but then stopped. And then I was like, I don't think I want to pursue it because like my dad, his life is pretty shit. You know, he's, he's an alcoholic. He's, he's got no job. He's got no home. He lives with my nana, his mum. You know, his life's pretty, pretty shit as it is. Like, I don't really need to, to go to the police. And then one of the guys, he was like, well, is he not escaping all that consequences by the drink? If he's in prison, he can't drink. I was like, mm, do you know what? You're right there. Do you know, if he's in prison, he, he can't escape the consequences of what he's done. So it got me thinking. One of the services that we are survivors offer is an ISVA service, which is they are independent sexual violence advisors. And what they do is they liaise between the police and yourself and remove, well, they're a barrier for the stress. The stress is still there. But they cushion it. So I reopened it. I had to do a, it's called obtaining best evidence interview. It took two months to arrange the date for this, but if eventually it happened and basically you sit in a room and everything I've told you, tell the police. It's so they have recorded evidence to go at the perpetrator with. Yeah. So that happened and then it was like, what we do now is we arrange a voluntary interview with who you've accused, my dad, and then we take it from there. So I was like, yeah, that's cool. Around this time, I took a trip to the States, which was amazing. It was the first time I'd felt normal again in like two years. All the nightmare that I've just described, it was gone for a little bit when I went over there because I, I really love going to the States. I went to Vegas and we drove to LA and then I just explored the desert with my camera. Do you know, it was great. I should have probably saved my money, but <laughs> oh well. The desert's like one of my favorite places and I, I find it, find it like refreshes the soul. I know it sounds a bit cliche, but I have a real affinity to being in the desert. I don't know if it's because of like isolation or general trauma or whatever, but I really feel at home there. So then I'm just, I come back and I'm just working photography and didn't hear anything about, you know, the interview. And then I get given a date. Oh no, it was August, I think. Yeah, August 2022. So it's a year after the breakup. Uh, I'm still in a pretty rough place mentally, but the days are getting easier to get through. I'm, I'm coping, I'm understanding what's happening, and I'm getting to grips with it. Uh, and the clouds are like lifting a little bit. The days are still dark, but there's a bit of light coming through each day, and it's not as dark as it was. Mm -hmm. But then one evening in August 2022, I was at work, and I got a call off my ISVA saying that my dad didn't attend the interview that day, which I fully didn't expect him to do. But leading up to the interview, I got told that if my dad doesn't attend that day, then there would be a warrant for his arrest that very same day. Go and get him. 
the same day that he failed to turn up. So I was like, my husband told me that. So I was like, okay, so they've gone and arrested him. And they're like, um, no, no, they're not going to arrest him. They're going to arrange a second voluntary interview. And I exploded in anger. Yeah. Because A, the police didn't do what they said they was going to do, which is go out and arrest him. If he's not attended the first voluntary interview, why is he going to attend the second? He's not going to. But also, I know my dad more than anyone, and I know what the games he likes to play. So I got told that news, and I had to apologise later to my husband because I really went off on him, like, just what he shouldn't have. The brunt of, I was furious, and I finished work that night, and I drove to my nana's house where I believed at the time my dad was living. And it sounds corny, this, but there's a two-pack song called If I Die Tonight, and there's a line at the beginning where it says, a coward dies a thousand deaths, a soldier dies but once. And then it says, um, tonight's the night I get in some shit. And I played that on repeat as I drove there, like seething in rage, seething in rage. If it got unleashed that night, then I would probably be in prison right now. Because I got there, I got to my nana's house and I banged on the door, like I'm the police. I'm banging on the door, I'm ringing the phone and no one's picking up. And I was, I was about to kick the door in, but then like a bit of rationality came over to me. Because I was like, if my dad's not there, then I'm just banging on the door of an eight-year-old woman, my nana's house close to midnight so I couldn't I couldn't do that like I can't I kind of come to my senses a little bit yeah. but I sat outside the house in my car in case my dad had, he'd been out drinking you know he was going to come back and I waited until 1am for like all the last buses or the last trams to stop running and then I decided he's either hiding inside or you know he's not coming back that night so I went home and luckily I didn't see him because if I'd have seen him that night then something would have happened the next morning I was still absolutely raging so I left him a voicemail. I basically confronted him. I said, um, I said, the reason the police are after you is because they know you're a fucking disgusting nonce. I said, as does my mum, as does my sister, as does my gran. Like, everyone knows what you've done to me now. I said, they know you're a disgusting piece of shit. I said, you can deal with the police or you can deal with me. Either way, you're fucking finished. It's over for you. And I said, I said, you best be scared because if I see you anywhere, you're a fucking dead man. You're done. And then I finished the call. I probably shouldn't incriminate myself fucking repeating that, but that's what happened. And this was a turning point in all this. This is why I mention it, because mm -hmm. prior to this, I'd, I'd always been in defense mode, still a bit of a victim mentality, scared of everything that I was going through. Like, you know, didn't understand it as it was new. I, I was scared of it. Yeah. Everything I've described, it's, you know, all that stuff that's happened to me, it causes your anger, which you, you can't really tap into too much because it is a, a big anger. And if you want to control your anger, which healthy people do, you have to get a lid on it, but it's there. And sometimes if I get triggered and I'm like, my life is this shit because of this guy, you know, vengeance is a, a real thing. And that was a turning point with him refusing to take the interview, which in reporting, that's all I ever wanted. I wanted him to sit in a room with no escape and to be told by the law, this is what you've done. What do you have to say for yourself? Do you know what I mean? He probably would have denied it. All, all it would have took was him to go in there and say, no, I've not done this. And then that, that in the CPS terms, they, were, they probably would have dropped that. But I wanted him to know that other people know what he's done. Anything else would have been a bonus for me. But like I said, I know how manipulative my dad is. I know what he does. I know all the countless situations he's gotten out of, you know, by being evasive, being annoying, knowing all the technicalities. He used to study law, so he knows like loopholes and he's a clever man, basically. If he had applied himself to not being a fucking idiot, he probably would have done all right in life. And he just he ties people up in jams and technicalities to the point where they're like, just like, fuck this guy, he's not even worth the effort. We're just going to get rid of this headache. So I know how he operates and I know what he does to survive. And I, I was not going to allow him to survive.
and slip through this one. After everything he's done, uh, I took it like insult to injury that he wants to play these games. So after all this, he's still trying to, to play these games he plays. So I was like, if you want to play games, I'll fucking play games. This is where all this has stemmed from. Like I went nuclear. I've I've gone public with my abuse. I've named who it was. There probably might still be repercussions for that because it's still all ongoing. But I was like, if you want to play games and you want to evade, then I'll just I'll just play along with you and we'll see who wins. And this is where we're at. Like my police case is still ongoing, which is why it's still a bit iffy to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. But he's been on the run for over a year now. He's been a fugitive for over a year now. No one's heard heard from him since August 2022. I know I've just sounded angry and everything else, but you know this it's still your dad. It's conflicting emotions. I'm not going to let abuse or what he's done continue to rule my life anymore. And for him to have gone on the run for over a year says all you need to know in terms of guilt. Guilty men don't go on the run for a year. Guilty men go straight down to that police station and say, what the hell have I been accused of? Let me clear my name right away. Um, But he didn't do that. He's like he's done his whole life, like I was doing for a lot of my life, running away from the problem. Is not outrunning this one, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and tie it up because now I've gone on a bit too long, and I want to explain why I've shared everything today and why I've shared it in such detail. Trauma, it's primarily remembered not as a structured story with like a beginning, a middle, and an end, but it's it's isolated sensory imprints. So you get images, sounds, physical sensations, intense emotions, and when all that happens at the time, it's not processed by the brain. It's still floating around in there, which is why you do get triggered and you do have flashbacks and it does you do relive the trauma over and over again in its fullness. And for a lot of people, you know, they can't even express what they've been through because it's that intense. As I've said, it's took me a lot of work and a lot of reading, a lot of research to understand my trauma, but also articulate it and be able to share it. One of the things I wanted to what I wanted to for people to understand is what it means to be triggered, what it means to be a trauma survivor, not just this happened, oh, I feel sorry for you, but how I have to live my life daily with this. So when I'm triggered, my body and my mind re-experiences all the feelings that I've described, like terror, rage, helplessness. You regress into this 12-year-old boy that's being attacked by his dad. What happened in the bath, the feelings, they come back to the present moment and you get the urge to fight or flight, freeze or fall. You know, the survival instincts overtake your brain. There's hippocampi in our brain that play a crucial role in creating and maintaining memory during significant stress events that activates the amygdala in your brain and it sends signals that disrupt everything. It's like battle stations, let's go. And that's that's how your brain operates and you can't, you simply can't just overcome that. It's It takes a lot of work. And the, the disruption, obviously, it's hard to live your day-to-day life if, if that's going on constant. You're supposed to just live this normal life like everyone else when really you need help you need support and there's people that live in silence that don't even reach this stage of understanding they just struggle and they drown and a lot of people don't make it they do kill themselves they do end up addicts and destroying themselves self-destructing and it can feel it can feel like a curse sometimes you know this trauma it can it really can you didn't ask for it you're not taught how to deal with it it completely fucks everything up but you've got it so what you're going to do with it how, how are you going to overcome it and i want to refer back to trauma recovery uh, by judith herman and on page 133 uh, chapter 7 it's titled a healing relationship and it goes recovery is based upon the empowerment of the survivor and the creation of new connections recovery can take place only within the context of relationships It cannot occur in isolation. In their renewed connections with other people, 
the survivor recreates the psychological faculties that were damaged or deformed by the traumatic experience. These faculties include the basic capacities for trust, autonomy, initiative, competence, identity and intimacy. So this is why I've started to create the workshops um, to help people. We live in an isolated world right now. You know, everything's online. No one likes to connect with each other. A lot of people are living in these isolated bubbles where they're just individually drowning, where all it takes is to get with a group of people and you feel okay again. But then it carries on the book. It says, in the second stage of recovery, the survivor tells the story of the trauma. They tell it completely and in depth and in detail. This work of reconstruction transforms the to- traumatic memory so that it can be integrated into the survivor's life story. Traumatic memory, by contrast, is wordless and static. The survivor's initial account of the event may be repetitious, stereotyped and emotionless. One observer described the trauma story in its untransformed state as a pre-narrative. It does not develop or progress in time, and it does not reveal the storyteller's feelings or interpretation of events. And then it says the next step is to reconstruct the traumatic event as a recitation of facts. Out of the fragmented components of frozen imagery and sensation, Patient and therapist slowly reassemble an organised, detailed verbal account orientated in time and historical context. The narrative includes not only the event itself, but also the survivor's response to it and the responses of the important people in their life. As the narrative closes in on the most unbearable moments, the patient finds it more and more difficult to use words. The survivor is called upon to articulate the values and beliefs they once held and that the trauma destroyed. Survivors of atrocity in every age and every culture come to a point in their testimony where all questions are reduced to one, spoken more in bewilderment than outrage. Why? The answer is beyond human understanding. And so that's how you get to this point. That's why I've shared everything today, because this is how you get over it. Sharing is unleashing the load and it's scary. No one wants to talk about sexual abuse. No one wants to hear it. No guy wants to say there was fucking almost raped by the dad, you know. No one wants to do that, but you must if you want to move past it. You don't have to do it as vocal as this. You don't have to, like, go on podcasts, but you must tell people, even if it's one person who can hopefully not dump you and move on with their life, but who will help you get through this. Give you some support. I'll mention it again. That's what this podcast is all about. Yeah, like, one of the other things I want to say is I share my story publicly, but publicly because I don't feel shame about this anymore, which is also a big thing. Like none of the shame of what has happened is mine to carry. Right. So I can people can think what they want of the story if it's weird or fucked up or anything, but I am not ashamed of it. I will tell people it happened to me. This is my story, and owning your narrative and owning your story that is a key element of recovery. I've still got a long way to go in healing. I'm by no means fixed. You're never going to be fixed. There's no such thing as recovery. What am I recovering to? It never developed. Am I recovering to be a 12-year-old child again? No, because how does that work? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. But you have to develop yourself. You have to become who you're supposed to be. And I still get triggered daily. You know, I still struggle, but I don't self-abandon, which is also the key. Like I said before, in the past, I would completely blow everything up. I'd blow my life up. Something happened at a job. Oh, fuck this. I'm going. Something happened in a relationship. Well, see you later. Mm-hmm. You completely self-abandon. You just destroy everything. And you have to break that cycle of doing that which is hard. It is. I need to still get my career off the ground and get myself in financial shape. And that's a hard one because it's beyond my control. You know, since I turned 30, I, I get rejected off everything because you kind of you kind of miss the boat in, in many regards. You just get rejected from everything, which when you're dealing with an issue of self-worth is very difficult. You just get rejected, constant. 
yeah so how are you going to find value in yourself but I'm, I've gone freelance with photography and it's a bit shaky right now but things are shaping up like I've gone from from a hobby to teaching myself to a level where I'm getting three month solo shows which is going to be a big platform for everything I've shared today and hopefully I'm hoping it's a turning point where people will say oh he is more capable he can do things <laughs> I probably taught myself a degree level of trauma knowledge you know the past three years look at all the books behind me I've delved right into this. I understand. I know what's going on. Yeah. I don't have a certificate for it, but I can I can understand it, which is good enough for me. Do you know I've, I've built up a small following on social media now? I've got like 6,000 followers with my photography and, and what I speak about, and that's growing. And you know, I've done all that with the fucking deck stats against me with all of this. Yeah. You know, I've, I've done it. Yeah. I've been dealing with the most horrific shit you could deal with. I've been a two-year police case where my dad is a fugitive from the law. A cost of living crisis where you can barely afford to live. You just plow forward. Like I'm proud of that. Do you know, I, I'm proud that I've I've kept going. That I persevered. That I didn't didn't give up even when everything was telling me to do that. That would be my key message to to any survivors listening. Is like never never give up on yourself ever. Keep fighting and keep learning because things that. will get better. Yeah, absolutely. So Lee, I think what I'm most curious about at this point is what what's the rest of your day going to look like? How are you going to take care of yourself for the remainder of the day and in the days to come thinking about the fact that you did the things that you needed to do by being on this podcast. You did take a huge step in telling basically the world, where are you going to go to give yourself comfort and compassion for the days and weeks to come? Um, Well, it's five past five in the afternoon right now. So I will probably have some chicken and pasta. Uh, I might go on my Xbox for half an hour to unwind Good. whilst that cooks. And then this evening, I'm I'm seeing a, a new girl now. Um, things are going quite well at the moment. So I'm going to stay there tonight. And then tomorrow, we're going to see Killers of the Flower Moon, the new Scorsese movie. So that would be really good. And then I'll probably go to the gym after that. The gym is a big outlet for me. That's day. why I struggled in the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good thinking time. It's a good stress relief. But yeah, I'll go and see her. We'll have a nice time. And then this week, I've got a lot of prep to do for my exhibition. Like I, I have to actually get stuff printed, the frames made, the posters made, everything that I've been putting off because I've got a lot of time is coming to the crunch time because I'm running out of time, yeah. as I always do. <laughs> so tell us when that exhibition starts and where it's at. It's at Gallery Oldham, which is like the, the art gallery of the town I'm from, Oldham, uh, in Manchester. And it's a three-month show, so it's from 9th of December to the 9th of March. It's called Places Nowhere, which is is how I envision dissociation. One of the taglines I'm going to have is for people that like to wander from the world somewhere into their own nowhere, which sounds a bit gibberish, but that's how dissociation feels, like you're here, but you're not here. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put you're, it. You've checked out. Mm-hmm. The, the exhibition is uh, photographs that fit into that theme that I've taken over the past three years as my healing journey has coincided with it. And I'm going to talk about, not talk about the sexual abuse, but show how they tie together and like how this journey has kind of gotten to this point. And because photography is a good way to share these things, you know, reading is quite heavy. Listening is easier, but like visually, people take a lot in visually, a lot easier than the other two. Yeah, that's true. Congratulations on the show. I think that's an amazing accomplishment in and of itself. And I wish you the very best of everything that could come out of that gallery showing. I hope and have high expectations for you that it will. 
if, if you can start getting me some work in, that'd be great. <laughs> well, and if there's listeners who are listening to this that are in driving distance or can get to the show, by all means, go see Lee's work. Yeah, they're good photographs. And where else can we find your photographs? Can we find some of your work online? Yeah, it's on Instagram. Uh, it's The tag is Coop SCW. So that's C-O-O-P-S-C-W. My website is placesnowhere.com. And that has all my work on there. It has prints. If people want to buy prints. And you can get, get a flavor of what my, my work is about on there. Excellent. I'm so glad we're putting this out there for you. Hope it brings you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the time and, and the invite to have me on. This is the first place I've shared so much and in so much detail in one narrative, and it's felt quite good to express it all in one go as well. Life's it cycles, it comes and goes. I wish nothing but the best for you, and I would love to talk in the near future about having you come back on the show and tell us how things are working out for you. So, yeah, I would love that. That would be awesome. I do want to stay in touch. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. Lee Cooper, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Thank you. Bye. That does it for another episode of Sexual Assault Survivor Stories, the SAS podcast. Thank you for joining me for this powerful conclusion to Lee Cooper's interview. I also want to thank Lee for his strength, courage, and fortitude in telling his gripping and insightful story. Please check out Lee's amazing photography work on Instagram at coopscw and at plcnowhere. You can also see and purchase Lee's work at www.placesnowhere.com and also read about his upcoming solo photography exhibit at the Oldham Gallery in Oldham, England, December 9th of this year through March 9th of 2024. I encourage you to check it out. Thank you again for joining me. And as always, please remember to do your part to help bring justice to victims and survivors of rape and sexual assault. A great way to do this is to start by believing because we all know someone whose life has been affected by rape or sexual assault. We'll see you next week.